You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Historically, when we talk about the early years of the exploration of Canada, the names of Cartier and Champlain dominate the conversation. The two men, after all, were among the first Europeans since the Vikings to map the mighty St. Lawrence River. And these men, particularly Champlain, would be pivotal in establishing the first permanent European settlements in Canada in the early 1600s. For all of that, these two are rightly celebrated. But there was another group of individuals who were critical to the exploration of the interior of North America, a group of men that are often forgotten. In Canada and the Great Lakes region, these men were called Coureurs des Bois, runners of the woods. These were a new breed of person in the Americas. Their homes were not in France, or even in the settlements of the region such as Quebec or Montreal. These men lived on the frontier with the indigenous peoples. For many of the Coureurs des Bois, they were more at home in the wilds of Canada than they were in any town or city. Of them, one priest wrote this, quote, The sort of person who thought nothing of covering five to six hundred leagues by canoe, paddle in hand, or of living off corn and bear fat for twelve to eighteen months, or of sleeping in bark or branch cabins. End quote. In researching the Coureurs des Bois, we don't find a lot of detailed information about them. Few of these men wrote books or returned to Europe and extolled their lives to the press. They lived and died on the frontiers of the New World. And while we have forgotten many of them, they were critical to the early exploration in North America, particularly in Canada and the Great Lakes region. And no man was as influential during this time period as the first of the Coureurs des Bois, Etienne Brûlé. Brûlé was not just a trader and an interpreter and a guide. He was an explorer and an adventurer. He was a man with boundless energy and enthusiasm and courage, who would travel the Great Lakes region like no one before, and perhaps since. So let us start with a little background. Up until the early 1600s, the primary interest in what is now Canada had been mostly limited to fishing. European fishing fleets would come to the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, catching the codfish which swarmed the waters but the nearby St. Lawrence River offered an intriguing route into the North American continent. In fact, early explorers looked at it as a possible passage to the Far East. The natives told the Europeans the story of the North Sea, a great body of water to the west. Obviously, the North Sea was not the Pacific Ocean, but instead Hudson Bay or maybe Lake Superior. But that would not stop the Europeans from searching, and the St. Lawrence would offer a way to explore and settle the region. The first attempts to establish permanent settlements on the St. Lawrence River ended in failure due to the harsh climate, disease, starvation, and hostile natives, not to mention poor planning and a lack of support. Trade would be limited to a handful of temporary outposts or the occasional ship that would visit an Indian village along the river. But Samuel de Champlain would change all that when he would establish Quebec in 1608, the first permanent settlement on the St. Lawrence River. 
The St. Lawrence River runs northeast from Lake Ontario, the easternmost of the Great Lakes, and empties into the Gulf of St. Lawrence. As the river goes northeast, it widens dramatically right where Quebec was established, making it an ideal location to guard the river, as well as explore the interior. I would recommend visiting explorerspodcast.com, where I posted a map of the region. It should give you a clearer picture on where we are going with this episode. So, the year is 1608, and Quebec is a fledgling settlement. Champlain, and others, recognized that the North American continent offered a unique new economic opportunity, furs. Up until the 1600s, most of the furs brought to Europe came from Scandinavia and Russia. But the European fishing fleets that came to the St. Lawrence region during the 1500s began to trade with the indigenous peoples for pelts. They did this first for themselves, just as a way to keep warm, but then they began to make bigger deals, and enterprising individuals saw a greater opportunity. Beaver pelts would be the primary focus of the fur trade. For the natives, the beaver was a source of food and clothing. But with the interest shown by the Europeans in the 1600s, it would become the single most important economic factor in Canada, New England, the Great Lakes, and eventually the Ohio Valley. In a short time, less than a decade, the lives of the Indians would become centered around the fur trade. The Europeans got beaver pelts, and in return the Indians received metal goods, pots and knives and axes and hatchets, and eventually firearms. In the early 1600s, the French took the lead in the fur trade, but eventually other nations would emerge as powers, including the Dutch, who set up their first settlement near present-day Albany, New York, in 1615, and then the English, who would establish colonies in Newfoundland, as well as up and down the coast of what is now New England. Champlain recognized that the key to the trade was the native peoples. Unlike the Spanish, who subjugated and conquered, the French embraced the Indians as critical partners in their business enterprise. I want to point out that this was an economic as well as nationalistic strategy. Champlain was not just a businessman, he was an officer of the French government. He wasn't just interested in making money, although that, of course, was incredibly important, but he was interested in expanding the French Empire. His goal was to make the fur trade the critical economic engine of New France. He would use the native peoples to accomplish that goal. In turn, he would create a prosperous colony, which would attract investors and, just as important, settlers. And settlers were essential to creating a lasting presence in the region. To do all of this, Champlain came up with a plan. He would take young men, who were in their late teens and early 20s, and place them with a native tribe, with the intent that they learn their language, their customs, and gain their trust. This would be a way to build a rapport with the tribe, and bring them into the French sphere of influence. The first of these young men was the aforementioned Etienne Brulé, and he is the star of today's episode. Now, before we get going, a quick note about the sources for this podcast. As I said, there's not a lot of information about these early frontiersmen that survives. What comes down is bits and pieces, mostly from men like Champlain, who wrote extensively about his experiences in the New World, or from the missionaries who lived in New France during this time period. So what we have on the Cure des Bois are rough outlines of their lives and deeds. It doesn't allow us to go into great detail at times, but I think it makes for some fascinating stuff. And one last thing I want to say before we start, I apologize for my mangled pronunciations. My French is as bad as my Spanish and Portuguese, and I won't even go into my pronunciation of some of the native Indian names. So forgive me for butchering yet another language, or three. With all that said, on to Etienne Brulé. Etienne Brulé was born around 1592 in Champigny-sur-Marne in France. Nothing is known about his younger years. He essentially pops up in New France right around the founding of Quebec in 1608. In 1610, a young Brulé, he would have been about 18 at this time, went to Champlain and proposed that he go live with the Huron Indians, where he would learn their language, customs, and habits. For Champlain, this is exactly what he wanted. 
He would approve the idea, and Brule would go live with the Huron, who resided roughly between Lake Ontario and the Georgian Bay, the latter of which is connected to Lake Huron. In exchange, a young Huron native was sent to live with the French. It was an insightful and effective strategy concocted by Champlain, as it integrated two peoples into each other's lives. For Champlain, an us-versus-them approach would only lead to conflict. This was about building trust and a partnership. So, a year would pass, and in June of 1611, Champlain would go to the Huron people, and Fryan Brule had done not only well, but he had pretty much gone native. He was dressing like the Indians and living as if he was one of them. He appears to have loved the life. Champlain said this of Brule, quote, I also saw my French boy who came dressed like an Indian. He was well pleased with the treatment received from the Indians, according to the customs of their country, and explained to me all that he had seen during the winter and what he had learned from the Indians, end quote. Champlain recognized an opportunity, as Brulé had become deeply integrated into the Huron community. This was an opportunity to not only deepen relations with the Huron, but to have Brulé learn more about the fur trade and the lands to the west. Champlain asked Brulé to stay with the Huron, and the young man readily agreed. So, at this point, Brulé pretty much goes off the grid. Champlain would not hear from him for four years. It wasn't until 1615, when Champlain visited the Huron, that he would come into contact again with the young Brulé. There, Brulé would recount his life with the Huron, offering Champlain valuable information about the region, the fur trade, the native tribes, and much more. Also during this time, Brulé learned not only the Huron language, but that of the Algonquins and the Montagnais, a native people who lived north and west of the St. Lawrence region. It would make him valuable as an interpreter, and just as important, make him effective as an explorer. One place that the two no doubt discussed was the mighty lake to the north, which was Lake Huron. Lake Huron is sort of in the middle of all the Great Lakes, a natural border between the modern-day states of Michigan and Ontario. The French would call it La Mer Douce, the freshwater sea. It is not known if Brulé had visited the lake. Knowing the customs of the Huron, it is likely he would have gone there at some point, but we just don't know. If he had been to Lake Huron, it would make him the first European to do so, but again, we just don't know. Champlain was interested in exploring the region and would set out for the lake in July of 1615. Brulé would accompany Champlain as a guide and interpreter. Brulé would guide the small expedition, which consisted of himself, Champlain, a servant, and ten Indians, from Montreal up the Ottawa River. They would have two canoes, heavily loaded with supplies. So, up the Ottawa went the two canoes, passing present-day Ottawa and pressing northwest. About 300 miles up the river, the men headed west along the Mattawa River, reaching Lake Nipissing on July 26, 1516. Around the lake lived the Nipissing Indians, who were of Algonquin descent, and they welcomed Champlain and Brulé, providing them with fish and game. After two days of rest, the party would continue, following a river that emptied into the southwest corner of the lake. The river is now called the French River, and it led to Georgian Bay, which is part of Lake Huron. The party would reach Lake Huron on August 1st, 1615. Now, before we go on, just a quick note about credit. Many historians give the nod to Champlain as the first European to, insert air quotes, discover Lake Huron. But in reality, a Franciscan friar named Joseph Le Caron had preceded Champlain to the lake a few days earlier. Thus, Caron is really the first man who gets credited as the first European to see Lake Huron. Of course, as noted, there's a good chance Brulé had visited the lake at some point between 1611 and 1615, but we don't know that for sure. Thus, Joseph Le Caron gets the honor of reaching Lake Huron first. Okay, credit aside, Champlain and Brulé would head south along the Georgian Bay's shoreline, mapping roughly 100 miles of the area, 
before heading inland to the lands of the Huron. They would meet up with Father Caron in mid-August at a Huron village. It is here that the Huron people were rallying their numbers. The plan was to go to war with the Iroquois, who lived south of the St. Lawrence River and were the traditional enemies of the Huron. A few notes about the Iroquois. As stated, they were the traditional enemies of the people north and west of the St. Lawrence River, the Huron, the Erie, and the Susquehannock, as well as the many Algonquin and Montagnier tribes. The Iroquois would eventually form a confederacy called the Iroquois League, or the Five Nations, which consisted of the Mohawk, Onondaga, Oneida, Cayuga, and Seneca peoples. They later added the Tuscarora people and would be known as the Six Nations, or Iroquois Confederacy, and become one of the most powerful Native American coalitions in history. In simplistic terms, the Iroquois League dominated the land south of the St. Lawrence River, roughly corresponding to what is modern-day New York State. The conflict with their northern neighbors was a centuries-old rivalry, but it would grow with the arrival of the Europeans. Anyhow, back to Brulé. Champlain agreed to accompany the Huron on their campaign, bringing with him about ten Frenchmen, all of whom were armed. The presence of the French and their muskets buoyed the spirits of the Huron, as they knew many of their enemies had never faced the power of such weapons. But when Champlain would set out with the Huron in early September, Brulé would not go with him. Instead, Brulé would be sent south, along with a dozen Huron warriors, to the lands of the Susquehannock. The Susquehannock lived south of Lake Ontario, and they were the allies of the Huron. The goal of the small band was to bring the Susquehannock into the fight against the Iroquois. They would, however, have to cross Iroquois territory to reach the Susquehannock, making it a dangerous trek. Champlain and Brulé agreed to rendezvous at an Onondaga settlement on October 11th. Brulé departed, along with the dozen Huron warriors, from Lake Simcoe on September 8th. The band would travel south to Lake Ontario, then take canoes along the western end of the lake to the mouth of the Niagara River, which connects Lake Ontario to Lake Erie. At the mouth of the Niagara River, Brulé and the Huron would head overland, southeast of Lake Ontario. Their location would have been at what is roughly modern-day Buffalo, New York. It should be noted that Brulé and his band of warriors accessed the lands to the south via the western end of Lake Ontario instead of the eastern end. The reason is that the eastern end was the heart of Iroquois country. Going around the lake from the western side was a much safer journey, but it was longer than if he had gone east. So, Brulé crossed into what is modern-day New York State, and that means it's time to stop and check off some firsts. In reaching Lake Ontario, Brulé is credited as being the first white man to see the lake, which is the easternmost of the five Great Lakes. It is also a possibility that Brulé was the first European to see Niagara Falls, as well as Lake Erie, but with both of these wonders, we really don't know if he saw them or not, so we can't give him credit on those. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, Brulé and his Huron allies headed southeast. He and his companions would have to cross through some Seneca-controlled territory. The Seneca were part of the Iroquois League and a hated enemy of the Huron. They would move stealthily through the enemy territory, safely reaching the Sisquehannock lands in early October. 
the Susquehannock would hold a banquet and celebrate the arrival of their Huron allies. They would agree to rally 500 warriors and proceed to meet with the Huron and their French allies and do battle with the Onondaga Indians. However, the Susquehannock would be slow in gathering their people, and despite the urgings of Brulé and his Huron friends, the war party would not depart until October 15th. Remember, Brulé was supposed to meet with Champlain on October 11th, so the Susquehannock were already late for the party, which was a three-day march away. As for Champlain, he would arrive at the rendezvous point on October 10th. He would later write that the Huron would become impatient and launch their attack early, alerting their enemies and allowing them to withdraw to the safety of their walls. With surprise out of the way, Champlain urged the Huron to attack immediately, before the Iroquois could improve their defenses. The ensuing battle would go on for three hours, and the Huron would be repulsed with many casualties, despite the presence of the French guns. Champlain himself would receive two arrow wounds in the fighting. With so many wounded, the Huron decided to wait for the Sisquehannock to arrive before trying another assault. They would wait five days, until October 16th, and when their allies failed to show up, they elected to retreat. The Huron campaign had ended in defeat. As for Brule, he and the 500 Sisquehannock warriors would arrive two days later. They really had no other options but to turn around, and the 500 warriors were not nearly enough to take the settlement. So Brule and his comrades would head back to the lands of the Sisquehannock. It is here that Brule elected to explore the region instead of heading back to New France. He would go south following the Sisquehanna River. The Sisquehanna is a twisting and turning river, going from New York and into Pennsylvania, then back into New York, and then back into Pennsylvania again. It then drops south, passing through modern-day Harrisburg, then into the state of Maryland, and eventually emptying out at the northern point of Chesapeake Bay. Along the way, Brulé would report that he encountered many warlike natives. As most of these tribes were of Iroquoian ancestry, they would have spoken a language similar to the Huron, allowing Brulé to communicate with those they'd encountered on his journey. Brulé would later report that the river he had followed, the Susquehanna, would take him to the sea, although due to confusing reports from Champlain and others, it is not known if he actually reached as far as Maryland and the Chesapeake Bay. In the end, historians are confident he reached as far as Pennsylvania, making Brulé the first European to explore the Keystone State. Brulé would then return north and spend the winter with the Susquehannock. In April of 1616, he would set out for New France with several Susquehannock guides. But when the small group of men tried to slip through enemy territory, they would be discovered by a Seneca war party. Brulé and the Susquehannock warriors would be quickly scattered, and Brulé would find himself alone. His guides would continue on to the Huron territory without him, and they would reach it without incident. But Brulé was lost and without food. He would wander for several days before coming upon a Seneca village. Desperate for something to eat, he approached the natives and tried to strike a peace with them. But the Seneca were not going to be fooled by Brulé, as he tried to pass himself off as something other than a Frenchman. They would seize him and tie him up to a tree, or, depending on the source you read, they tied him to the ground. The Seneca would torture Brulé, something that was common to afflict upon one's enemies for most of the natives in the region. It is said that the Indians tore out some of Brulé's nails, as well as the hairs of his beard, and then they burned him with firebrands. According to Brulé, what happened next was that he told the Seneca that they would be cursed if they killed him. Then, when a severe storm suddenly appeared shortly thereafter, he convinced the natives that it was the wrath of the Great Spirit coming down on them. This would terrify the Seneca, and they would stop their torture and free Brulé. That is a great story, but it is probably not true. In reality, Brulé likely convinced the Senecas that he was an important man and that he held much power with the French. Remember, these were the earliest days of the fur trade, and the presence of Europeans was a new thing. 
The Iroquois did not trade with the French because the French were allied with the traditional enemies of the Iroquois, the Huron. So here was Brulé, likely saying he was in tight with the French and that he could swing a sweet trade deal for the Seneca. Of course, that wasn't true, but what the heck, when your life's on the line, what's a few little lies? The ploy appears to have saved his life. The Seneca would free Brulé and escort him to the Niagara River area. There they would let him continue on his own. At this point, Brulé does his disappearing act again, and we don't have any record of him or his activities until he makes contact with Champlain in July of 1618 at the trading post of Trois-Rivières, which is on the St. Lawrence River between Quebec and Montreal. Champlain and Brulé had not seen each other for almost three years. So, back with Champlain, Brulé expressed his desire to go west, particularly toward the North Sea that the natives said lay beyond Lake Huron. It was a desire that Champlain held as well, because remember, the French and everyone else were looking for that elusive passage to the Far East. Also, in pushing west, Champlain wanted to set the stage for further expansion of the fur trade. He needed to know what lay in the distance. He wanted to know what Indian tribes were in the west, where they lived, and how to get there. Plus, Brulé could lay the siege for future contact by the French, smoothing over that awkward first step of getting to know one another. So Champlain gave Brulé the go-ahead to head west, but he would request that Brulé wait for a year, until 1619, so that Champlain could go with him on his explorations. Champlain couldn't go with him at this time because he was heading to France. But Champlain's life as an adventure was pretty much done. He actually wouldn't return to New France until 1620. When he did return, he would be on the wrong side of 40. Champlain was a tireless man, but he had led a hard life, and he had the scars to prove it. But the backwards of New France were not an easy place for an aging man, and Champlain would focus on administering the colony going forward. As for Roulet, he would not be idle during these next two years. When Champlain had not arrived to go exploring in 1619, Brulé would set out north to the lands bordering Lake Huron. He would reach as far as the north channel of Lake Huron, which is a stretch of water along the north shore of the lake. Brulé would remain there for the winter of 1619-1620, then return to the St. Lawrence River area in the summer of 1620. He would bring with him more stories of the Great Sea to the west. And of course, Champlain wanted to find out more. Was it the Pacific Ocean? Was it Hudson Bay? Or was it something entirely new? No one knew, so he encouraged Brulé to set out again. Brulé would depart on his next journey in 1621, leaving from the Huron village of Tonche, joined by another Cura de Bois, a man simply known as Grenoble. Brulé would travel north to Lake Huron, then journey by canoe along the northern shore of the lake. He would go further west than he had ever gone, eventually reaching the rapids of Sault Ste. Marie, where Lake Superior enters Lake Huron. The journey makes Brulé the first European to visit Lake Superior, the largest lake in the Western Hemisphere and the second largest in the world, after the Caspian Sea. The lake was freshwater, meaning Brulé knew he had not reached the Pacific. From here, the exact route Brulé took isn't known. He may have ventured into Lake Superior, but if he did, it likely wasn't too far. Another possibility is that he followed the northern shore of Lake Huron a little further west and reached Lake Michigan, but again, we just don't know. Brulé would ultimately return from his journey in the summer of 1623 and report his findings to Champlain. In 1625, Brulé would then travel west of the Huron lands to a place dominated by what is called the Neutral Nation, a confederacy of Iroquoian-speaking Indians who lived near the northern shores of Lake Ontario and Lake Erie on the western side of the Niagara River. The Neutral Nation had long been spoken of, but no white men had ever visited them until Brulé. Also, at one point, probably between 1623 and 1629, Brulé appears to have spent a year, possibly in Quebec, 
teaching Gabriel Sagard, a recollect friar, and possibly others of his order, the Huron language. But that story is sort of murky, so I'm not sure exactly when, and really if, it ever happened. But more importantly, this is around the time where various forces seem to emerge against Brulé. We should remember that up until the early 1620s, Brulé had been an on-and-off-again presence in New France. He would be gone years at a time. And while he was seen as brave and skilled and effective, there were some in the colony that viewed him as morally depraved and as untrustworthy. I think much of this comes from the fact that Brulé had spent much of his adult life with the Indians, mostly the Huron, and he had adopted their ways and their attitudes and their customs. For many of the French, Brulé had become a savage. It was a deep insult that a Frenchman would prefer a life with the wild Indians rather than a life with the civilized and Christian French. The missionaries who knew Brulé did not approve of his lifestyle. Even Champlain took note, writing this about him. Quote, this man was recognized as being very vicious in character and much addicted to women. End quote. Again, Brulé is living his life on the terms of the natives, who the French saw as debauched and savage. Thus, he is equated to those terms. He is nominally a Frenchman and a Catholic, but his loyalties lie elsewhere. In addition to the moral complaints from the church, Brulé's actions would begin to come in conflict with those of Champlain and the administration of New France. In the 1620s, the fur trade had become the dominant economic force in the region. The French under Champlain had created a series of trade monopolies in the colony, the most notable the Company of 100 Associates. The monopolies dominated the fur trade, and they would send agents to the Allied nations or else have the Indians come to the trading posts that they established. And it was Brulé's job to assist the fur trading companies with this task. He was a guide and an interpreter, and he would help facilitate such deals. But independent traders pushed deeper and deeper into the wilderness, especially as the supply of beaver pelts waned as it was over-harvested. These were the coureurs de bois, independent men who ventured into the wild and struck deals with the natives, ignoring laws and licenses and customs. These traders were technically illegal, but men like Brulé worked with them, acting as guides and interpreters and advisors. In time, Brulé's relationship with the illegal fur traders would cause Champlain and others to turn against him, as the rogue fur traders undermined the monopolies that existed. These illegal traders also threatened the fragile relationships the French had established, or were trying to establish, with the various Indian tribes. Ultimately, Brulé would be accused of working for the French administration of the colony, as well as the independent fur traders, a charge that was likely true. No matter what the circumstances, many of these things would probably have just been forgotten had it not been for Brulé's actions when war broke out between the French and English in 1627. In 1628, a squadron of English privateers under David Kirk would sail up the St. Lawrence River and effectively cut off Quebec from supplies and reinforcements. For a year, the colony was cut off from aid, and starvation was looming over Quebec. What happened next is disputed, but the general belief is that at some point in 1629, Brulé would either voluntarily join the English, or perhaps he was captured. He would help the English navigate up the St. Lawrence, effectively putting Quebec under siege. Champlain would be forced to surrender the city in July of 1629. The surrender would throw the region into chaos. Some of the French would flee into the interior, staying with their Indian allies but most of the French would board ships and return to the mother country. Others simply accepted the change in power, and one of those men was Etienne Brulé. I do want to add that the story of Brulé going over the English is a murky one. Some sources basically flat out call him a traitor. Others don't mention him at all. It is also possible that his acceptance of British rule after the fall of Quebec was enough to brand him a traitor. Certainly men like Champlain viewed Brulé as a turncoat, his actions helping the English capture the colony. 
Thus, to many, he betrayed his native France. But I think it's important to realize that, for Brulé, his home was the frontier, not some land across the ocean that he hadn't seen in more than 20 years. The Huron were his people and his family, not the French. So no matter what the circumstances leading up to the capitulation of Quebec in 1629, Brulé would continue to live in Canada, working with the English now that they were in power. The English occupation of Quebec would be short-lived, and the colony would return to French control in 1632. Champlain would return to Canada the following year, in 1633. No doubt he had plans for the traitorous Brulé, but whatever they were, fate would intervene. When Champlain arrived in Quebec, he received word that Brulé was dead. The circumstances of Etienne Brulé's death are not particularly clear. That he was dead, we do know. Here is the story as best as we can figure it out. The Huron and the Iroquois were in an ever-escalating war with each other. In a battle, Brulé would be captured by the Seneca. He would later escape from his captors and return to the Huron village of Touch. But something was wrong. The Huron were not buying his escape story. They accused Brulé of trading with the Seneca, their most hated enemy. It's not known exactly why these accusations were leveled at Brulé. There were many questions here. I mean, why would Brulé deceive the Huron? He had been living with them for over 20 years. These were his adopted people. Why risk everything just to trade in secret with the Seneca? Again, we don't really know. Maybe it was all a misunderstanding, or perhaps Brulé really was guilty as charged. Greed can be a powerful force. Or perhaps there were deeper issues that were at play here that we will never know about. In the end, it appears that the Huron did not trust their adopted brother, and thus Brulé was seen and treated as an enemy. The Huron would kill Brulé, stabbing him to death. French sources reported that the Huron dismembered Brulé after his execution, and then they ate him. I'm not sure if the report is true, as we have to remember that the French had a dim view of Brulé at this point. He was a traitor in their eyes. Perhaps when they heard news of Brulé's death, they embellished the circumstances just to sully Brulé's reputation a little bit more. So Etienne Brulé was dead. The original Coeur des Bois would have been about 41 years old. Etienne Brulé was a one of a kind. He was more at home with the native Indians than anywhere, likely a restless man. He seemed to relish life with the Indians. Perhaps it gave him a freedom in an outlet that he could not experience as a member of quote-unquote civilization. No matter, all this made him an excellent explorer. His accomplishments are really quite incredible. He visited four of the Great Lakes, Erie, Ontario, Huron, and Superior, and it's possible he reached Lake Michigan as well. It's generally agreed that Brulé was the first European to reach Lake Superior and Lake Ontario. He would travel extensively through the areas surrounding the Great Lakes, the St. Lawrence River, and what is now New York and Pennsylvania. This was thousands of miles of wilderness that no white man had ever been to before. Probably Brulé's biggest fault was his lack of record-keeping. It would have been amazing if he had written down or even dictated the places and people he had seen. Instead, we're left with just a fraction of what the man experienced, and much of that tainted by the French writers, who, remember, viewed him as a traitor at this point. Now, before we finish, I want to add a few notes about Brulé and his discoveries and what came next. Regarding the exploration of the Great Lakes, Jean Nicolet, a curé de bois like Brulé, would follow in Brulé's footsteps and reach Lake Michigan in 1634. He would land near what is present-day Green Bay, Wisconsin, then travel up the Fox River before portaging two miles to the Wisconsin River. The Wisconsin River flows into the Mississippi, and while Nicolet wouldn't quite reach the Mississippi, he would be followed by Louis Joliet and Jacques Marquette in 1673, as the two would sail down the Wisconsin to the Mississippi. That would essentially set the stage for a new trading route from the Great Lakes to the Mississippi River. 
Another thing I want to talk about briefly is the fur trade in the area around the St. Lawrence River and the Great Lakes. A full-scale war between the various Indian nations would erupt in 1628, the beginnings of what is called the Beaver Wars, pitting the French and their allies against the British and Dutch and the Iroquois League. The beaver population was declining, and the Iroquois moved north and west to gain more territory. The result was decades of war. Some tribes, like the Huron, would almost completely be destroyed in the conflict. Other tribes would be forced to flee west in the face of the powerful Iroquois nations. Add into this disease, which was brought from Europe to the New World, and many of the indigenous peoples of the area were devastated within a few generations of contact with the Europeans. As for Brule and men like him, the Cura de Bois would continue to play an important part in the exploration of the New World. In time, they would become more regulated with licenses and rules. These would be the famed voyagers, the successors of the Cura de Bois. Like the frontiersmen of the United States, such as Daniel Boone, these men would take on an almost mythical stature, rugged and individualistic and resourceful, the epitome of the frontiersmen still celebrated today. So, that is it, the story of Etienne Brulé, the first of the Cura des Bois, the runners of the woods. As I said up front, men like Brulé are often forgotten by history. They do the dirty work of exploration, leaving the glory for others. And while Etienne Brulé is not a household name, he is not forgotten, at least not by us at Explorers. I have hoped you enjoyed this unique tale, The Life of Explorer Etienne Brulé. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.